Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Looking at the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. It does feel like questions about internet platform content moderation are going to be with us for a long, long time. Uh, we've had a few discussions around this topic over the past few years, uh, but now that we have Congress and uh, even the president and uh, large parts of the media suddenly commenting on the issue, it's uh, no longer just a topic that uh, a, a few of us obsessives <laughs> are focused on, and, and it's not just a, a narrowly focused discussion among mainly academics and lawyers uh, right now. And uh, one of the things that has become abundantly clear in all of the discussions about platforms and their moderation choices is, unfortunately, that most people have little to no understanding of how it actually works or perhaps how it doesn't work, uh, nor do they understand what various companies are trying to do or uh, the, really the scale of the challenge that they're facing. Um, and unfortunately, this has made conversations about this topic incredibly frustrating. Uh, people make an awful lot of assumptions, and many of those assumptions are really, really bad uh, or uninformed, and that makes it very difficult to have sort of a thoughtful, nuanced discussion on a really challenging topic. And so some of the, the uh, confusion or mistakes that people make are saying things like platforms shouldn't moderate content at all uh, or that companies don't really care about moderating content. Um, and I, I keep trying to get people to better wrap their heads around the fact that all of their sort of easy solutions to these questions generally are, well, wrong uh, because I don't think there are any easy solutions. Um, and to get people to have a, a better understanding of these things, people really need to understand uh, how we got here, what companies have actually done, and sort of the nature of the the uh, the, the challenges that these companies are facing. Thankfully, uh, a few months back, uh, then Yale PhD student Kate Klonick published a really incredible paper in the Harvard Law Review entitled The New Governors, uh, The People, Rules, and Processes Governing Online Speech. Uh, and while I recognize that not many people may choose on their own uh, to read a 73-page law review article, uh, I cannot recommend this paper more highly. If you really want to understand uh, the issues behind the content moderation debates, uh, it goes through the history of content moderation online, including the laws, the corporate culture, and economic incentives, as well as how content moderation actually works and what impact it might have. Uh, Klonick is now an assistant professor at law at St. John's University and is joining us on the podcast to discuss both her paper and the general questions around content moderation. Uh, so, Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. So the paper was, it turned out to be really, really well-timed uh, and important as this discussion has suddenly become, you know, front page news. Um, why did you choose this particular topic when you did? 
Yeah, that's actually <clears throat> kind of a very funny story. Um, well, I think that, um, uh, you know, as part of my, my work at Yale, I was working on internet law and issues of speech and uh, online culture. And I actually started researching how things came down under the um, uh, copyright provisions and mm-hmm. um, notice and takedown. And that actually didn't end up being as interesting a story. Um, and people were very reticent to talk to me. But in the course huh. of researching that, I found this, you know, I found out all about content moderation. And I have to credit um, uh, Jeff Rosen's um, mm-hmm. early work on this. In, I mean, and he wasn't writing for Nothing Publications. He was writing for the New York Times Magazine and for <laughs> Wired and stuff, talking about this in 2011 and 2012 and talking to a lot of the same people I talked to. So he was really on top of this. Um, but for some reason, it didn't have purchase, I don't think, with people understanding what was fully going on. And part of that is because I don't think people understood in 2010, 2011, um, really um, the the nature of what social media was and what it was going to be. Uh, So I don't think that they were even at a place where they could kind of understand these big ideas that would possibly challenge it or crop up. Um, So when I turned to it uh, in 2020, I guess it was 2015, 2016, um, I, I just kind of realized that there needed to go back and do a lot of Jeff's work again, and then to also kind of add to make a holistic kind of history of how this had happened. Because what struck me was that these companies that had emerged in the intervening time, um, there were really only three, Twitter, YouTube, or Google, and Facebook, and Mm -hmm. that they had developed their own policies, each in like a very different way, um, and that we had no idea how that had happened, and it had to be a really interesting process. And so that's kind of why I dug in. Yeah. And and just to give some of the listeners, um, I guess, some idea of of what's in the paper, I mean, do do you want to give an example of some of the the early history of you know pick pick a uh story that you think was particularly interesting i think th- there are a few different you know uh illustrative uh, <laughs> examples of of the choices that companies were making i don't know if you have one top of mind that might be good for people to understand yeah so i think that um kind of to really understand. So I'll talk about Facebook because I kind of had like the most sure. understanding of what was going on there and like the best sources. Um, but it seemed like for years, well, Facebook was a company and a platform that was servicing or, you know, frequented by American college age students from 2004, from its founding to about 2009, that started to dramatically change. It was no longer college age students. Then it was no longer Americans. Um, and, of course, every time you kind of create these platforms, uh, you have content going up that people find unpalatable. Um, and some of that, um, there's laws around uh, how specifically, um, what, what specifically can stay up and come down. Child pornography cannot stay up. That's very right. clear. Um, you know, uh, there's, uh, there's kind of a number of different uh, areas that these platforms have to specifically comply with. But there's also a great deal uh, that they can choose to make the rules themselves and what they're going to take down or keep up. And at Facebook anyways, for a long time, their rule was, if it makes you feel bad, take it down, which was very much, as I kind of say, a standard in the sense that like, uh, don't drive too fast is a standard. And don't drive over 25 miles per hour is a rule. Um, right. it, like, you know, like <laughs> as the standard, the standard of um, if it feels bad, 
take it down is only as good as kind of the norms, the normative understanding of the person applying it matches the normative understanding of the people being um, having it applied to them. Um, right. And that, of course, just couldn't last in a in a in a um, in a scale. Uh, scaled community that Facebook was experiencing from going from um, this American college age culture to a global culture. And so they had a team of like, I don't know, a dozen people that were kind of doing this in Menlo Park. And that was all fine and good until it just wasn't anymore. And they started (laughs) deciding to make rules and to kind of put these rules in place. And Dave Wilner um, was one of the main architects. And so was Judge Hoffman. Mm -hmm. And the two of them kind of like, came up with these rules. I think Dave wrote most of them and Judd kind of oversaw them. And um, they kind of were trying to allow people who were going to start doing content moderation um, in, uh, they were basically trying to create their own norms and rules that reflected their norms as Facebook wanted the community to be. And then those norms had to be teachable to outside people. So you had to be able to train content moderators in the Philippines or India or Eastern Europe or Ireland on these types of standards. And they had to be based on exactly what they could see in front of them on the screen and not any type of normative implication that was around whatever they were seeing. and so, uh, you know, I think that kind of one of the best examples of one of the things they struggled to in the early days to really kind of get their mind around was they had a no nudity policy. And so in the States, of course, um, like breasts are a little taboo. And so that meant that like they couldn't discern when something was pornography and when it was otherwise. So they just banned women's breasts. Um, you know, that was not as okay with France and India still thought the fact that like you had open mouth kissing was terrible. So like, this is kind of like, <laughs> there's, you know, the, the idea here being like, you know, you're doing it right if nobody's happy. So, <laughs> right. um, there's, uh, so they kind of, so they made this and then of course there was breastfeeding. So right. what, and so this is like a very famous kind of example, but like, how did you end up, how do you end up, um, how do you end up making exceptions for that? And there were a number of protests from women who felt like they were being censored, uh, perhaps rightly, by Facebook taking down this very natural act. Um, but for for people in um, for people that were doing the moderation, it was very difficult to have the cultural context to understand when breastfeeding was happening mm. and when it was not. And so one of they started having to make a lot of rules. And so one of the rules that they kind of made was like, okay, well the baby has to be like actively feeding. Um, And then it was then, you know, of course, you ran into, okay, well, the baby is resting on the mother's chest after feeding. Is that okay? Um, You know, and then it was kind of like, okay, and then there were some weird things that were coming in that were like, seemed like they were adults kind of breastfeeding or like large (laughs) children, and it was child (laughs) pornography, possibly. And so um, that was not okay. Um, And, you know, so okay, well, if the baby can walk, then you know, we're going to, we're going to take down anything with breastfeeding if it looks like the child is old enough to walk on their own. But of course, like a lot of people breastfeed until (laughs) way past that age. So it just, it ends up being this kind of, you are trying to make you, I think when I say you, I think like a content moderator or a Facebook, like a person would observe this type of thing and think that a rule seems easy and intuitive. Why can't they just ban breastfeeding? And I think that you have to really think that when you try to translate something like a ban on breastfeeding into instrumental rules that can be con- that can be free from context and norms and just be observable 
on the surface, it's just the, the gnarliest task. It's just like <laughs> very hard. Um, and it's just naughty. And you just, and so I think that, you know, the, the punchline of this story is that they had this, in, this rule, they finally kind of tooled this, uh, this breastfeeding rule, and they thought that it was like doing okay. And like the breastfeeding advocates were finally a little bit appeased. And then all of, like somebody like started posting pictures of like a woman breastfeeding a goat. Um, in like her village in like Africa. And it turns out that like during drought, apparently this is like a thing that people do is they just, you know, is like, that's actually how you keep your herd alive. And like, if you find a lactating woman and like you breastfeed the goats and the lactating woman so that they can like, they don't starve and the babies don't die. Um, and you keep anyways, it was a completely legitimate reason, but sure. it was, un... it was not allowed. It was not allowed in the site under the rules because it just, it couldn't be, you couldn't imagine, imagine how weird things would start getting if you allowed animals breastfeeding to be right. uh, at humans being on the, on the site. So it just is a very interesting kind of, um, it's a very interesting kind of phenomenon. And the other part that I just add is for every time that a picture like that might be flagged for them to look at, that picture might exist 20, 20 times elsewhere on the site and never be flagged and thus never kind of put into the queue of things to review and made part of their policy. And so I think it's very, you know, all of this is not even a, a perfect experiment by any means. It's very much based on, on kind of um, intermittent reporting and changes in what we decide to find offensive or not. Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting, um, and and that I think a lot of people have a have a hard time understanding is that I, I think most people think that most of these decisions are sort of black and white. There's good content and there's bad content, and you leave up the good content and you take down the bad content. And I don't think they recognize just how much of that content is in a gray area, um, and there may be you know varying shades of gray, but but there are you know. There are decisions that have to be made uh, about each of them, and and many of them involve subjective decisions. And like you know, um, you know, together with uh, with CDT a few months back um, at the content moderation conference in in DC, you know, I helped run this session where we we had the audience try and um, you know they received reports of you know. This this content has been uh, reported by somebody. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, should it stay up or or should it stay down or should it be taken down? And what was incredible is we had this audience of you know I don't know how many people over a hundred um, you know people who are in the space. They're at a content moderation conference, um, and none of them could agree on yeah. <laughs> on what to do about the content that we showed as flagged. And we showed, you know, the content it had been flagged. We showed the specific terms of service that it was accused of violating and you had to make a decision. And we had not, uh, you know, and obviously we chose, you know, situations that were, you know, on purpose somewhat difficult, but, you know, there was no case where even the ones that we thought were sort of easier where everyone agreed, you know, we had four different options that people could do and leave it up, take it down, apply some sort of, you know, uh, flag to the content saying, mm. like, you know, you, know, you have to click, you know, click through there's, you know, potentially adult content or something like that, um, or escalate, which is basically like punt this issue. I don't want to deal with it. Um, and you know, with every example that we had, at least someone in the audience chose each of those options. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, each person looking over the, this, these pieces of content may have, have different 
different ideas. And then, you know, you multiply that by millions, right? I mean, you have so many pieces of content, you're going to have sort of, you know, uh, sort of both types of errors, right? Type one and type two, where, you know, content that is, you know, I, I again, it's sort of gray. So I hate to use the, the terms like good content and bad content. No, but but yeah, I understand to, what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have content that is, you know, that most people probably think is good taken down and content that most people think is bad left up. And, you know, and, and just, you know, if, if you're talking about, you know, a million pieces of content per day, even if they get 99% of those right, there's still a huge number of mistakes that are going to be made. Um, and, and of course, then everyone gets all furious because the mistakes, you know, get sort of talked about. Um, and, and so I, I, and, and, you know, we're talking about sort of larger and larger bits of content. And, and, I mean, you mentioned, um, Dave Wilner, who sort of wrote the original rules at Facebook. And I think, you know, I met with him, um, years ago, like soon after he had left Facebook and he was sort of the first person to, to, you know, sort of get me to understand a bunch of this stuff. And I, I wish, you know, if, if, you know, I, I keep telling people they should read your paper. The other thing I wish people could do is just sit down with Dave Wilner for he's a couple incredible. of hours. I know. It's and... just because, yeah, he's really, he's, he is amazing. I, I, so one of the interesting things, I mean, it, I will also say that it, there is something, it's funny that you, I love that exercise. And I hope that we're also having, as I think, you know, there's going to be a content moderation conference, yeah. follow up to the DC one in New York on October 25th that I've organized. Um, and so uh, I hope that people find that it's organized. It's being hosted by um, St. John's and it's in Manhattan. And um, I think we're going to be doing this um, again with CDT, um, mm -hmm. that exercise, which I think was so great. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about some of this is it took me forever to be able to have talking to Dave and Judd and other people and a lot of going back and trying to understand the black box. It's one thing to be in it. This is actually just super complicated to understand from the outside. It, someone has to really kind of break it down. So I don't like, I don't blame, I don't think you should yeah. blame yourself or like, I think that it's, it's, it's intuitive if you're, in, if you like, if you exist at one of these institutions and you've been doing it for a while. But um, I think that how I break it down is actually kind of this idea of um, that you're kind of touching on when you say good speech and bad speech, and then, um, you know, people deciding what to do with it. So I would kind of think of it in two ways, like what has to happen and what is kind of starting to happen, it has happened already, but now it's being subject to a larger audience and more scrutiny, is the question of whose values do we want to right. express when we say we want to keep up good content? Well, what do we mean by good content? What do we mean by bad content? And what should that look like for a global audience when you're creating a global norm for speech? Um, and so that's, I mean, and that's, you know, that is the private prerogative of these platforms. Um, and they are subject to kind of reputational concerns and um, relevancy concerns and staying um, in the public trust and all of these things that create pressure. Um, but that's kind of more or less like they just get to choose. Um, and so they're in the process of doing that, of kind of creating more thoughtfully um, what they want uh, the values to be or what they think the value should be in consulting people outside. Um, and I'll get back to more on the timing of that in a second. But the second thing is the how question, which mm -hmm. is really kind of what your, what, what your content moderation thing gets down to. It is one thing to say, okay, we can decide that uh, pornography is bad, but how you instrumentalize 
um, which I mean, like just as an example, like just let's say that we decide pornography is bad, just how you Mm -hmm. instrumentalize that is incredibly, incredibly difficult. So I think that kind of what, um, what that exercise that you did in DC really shows is that one, we can't even decide what our values should be because everyone right. has different, everyone has really strong feelings and they're very different. And two, that once you even, if you could even decide, like, or once you do decide, it's just so hard to kind of create rules that can be flexible enough and reactive yeah. enough to even do the task of capturing the speech that you don't want to see up and taking down, taking it down and leaving up the good content. Um, it's just a very, very hard, uh, it's a very, very hard thing to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the issue too, is that, um, so much of this is really context dependent. Um, Mm. and it's, you know, for a variety of reasons, sort of impossible for, um, the people who are making these decisions to, to understand the context. And that might be just because the time it would take, you know, to understand, uh, you know, this is a joke referring to a meme, um, you know, not an actual threat on somebody's life or something like that, you know, would be impossible, especially especially when, you know, in some cases, you know, people are expected to go through like 5,000 pieces of content uh, per day. And, 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 you know, oftentimes the rules are basically like, just look at this content. Does this content as it is by itself, violate these rules that, that you've been been taught, um, you know, and expecting them to then go and apply the, the context for it is effectively impossible. Um, you know, you, you don't have people who can sit there and investigate, you know, you know, the history of a meme and somebody's referring to something else or, you know, even in, in, in some cases, I know, like, I've been trying to get this across lately because people will, um, you know, talk about, you know, this tweet in context or whatever. And people say, well, it's not replying to another tweet. So there is no context. And it's like, no, you know, context means more than just like it's replying to this tweet. It could be, you know, a effectively a subtweet on something that's going on in the larger world without a direct reference to it. Um, and if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand the context and what it means and how everyone is taking it. Um, but, you know, taken out of context, it could look really, really bad. Um, and you have lots of situations like that. Um, and you have lots of situations where the sort of subjective reality of the the individuals reviewing this stuff, um, you know, comes into play as well. Uh, and, and I think it's it's really difficult for people to sort of, you know, understand that. Yeah, no, I think that that's, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, but to channel Dave a little bit, I think that mm-hmm. Dave would say right now that it's actually not about context because what the entire point of the rules is, is to try to remove context yes. because it is impossible to discern things for all of the reasons that you said, to teach the infinite layers of context and everything else. So that basically what you need to be able to do is to code context, to <laughs> turn context into a series of visible um, uh, um visual cues that a content moderator can look at and determine that the cluster of these cues tell me that this is permissible content because it's likely a joke or this is permissible (laughs) content because um, it's happening in um, because it's commenting on something that's like happening in England that we understand is like a 
you know, some type of other joke or some type of other protest or something. And I think that that's kind of a key point because it's really like you can never keep up with context and context is always going to change. But the whole point of the rules is to create a series of of just as objective as possible um, things that you can just see because you can never totally know context. So for example, when they came up with the bullying rules, um, technically like the academic definition of bullying is like a power imbalance between, you know, an older kid and a younger kid or a more popular kid and a less popular kid. And it takes place, um, you know, uh, around shaming and there's kind of um, harassment and all of these types of things, right? And that's not an instrumentable thing for Facebook to uh, to be able to do on its platform. They can't right. possibly know how old everyone is and what like whether someone was popular that day in school or what happened in English class in you know in Rehoboth Middle Schools like seventh grade like you know that you know in that moment that makes this this particular thing that's happening on so-and-so's 14-year-old's Facebook page uh, (laughs) a problem. Like, that's just not, you know, there's no way that they can ever take that context into consideration. But what they can do is decide to make a blanket rule that says, if you report speech against you and it looks like, and it is harassment by our definition of harassment, then we will take it down. And that kind of blanket rule has problems, Right. right? But they had to decide that like in this context, that type of speech likely was not going to be um, worth, like the value of that type of speech was de minimis compared to the harm that it could cause like a particular individual. Right. And, and, and I agree completely. And and my point in, in raising context is is basically the same. I wasn't, you know. Oh yeah, no, the, you're totally right. I'm just kind of trying to kind of <laughs> yep. like to cast yeah. in a slightly different terminology. Yeah. It, it, no, exactly right. I mean, it, the the point is like you can never you can never put context into the rules, and therefore the rules will always miss it because there's no there there is no way that you could reasonably do that. And and Dave is right in in that. You know, you try and code in as much as possible, um, but the you know one of the reasons why these things come out wrong, you know, again, wrong being sort of a, an absolute term for a very fuzzy concept, um, is because there, there is no way to put the put the context into these things. Yeah. Um, you went. I wanted just to, to touch on one thing that you yeah. said earlier, which I thought was super interesting. So one of the things too, when I'm kind of giving the history of this, um, and you know, I talk about how um, you know, you also asked me what, how I got turned on to this topic. I will also say that like when I started this topic, I had to spend at least three minutes explaining con- what content moderation <laughs> was to every person that I met right. and talked to, and everyone was like, "Oh, that's fascinating. I had no idea that existed." And I was like, "Yeah, I know." And so, <laughs> and like a year later, literally nine months later, or like a year later, it was you know, it was just in the front pages of the news. And there's a few reasons that all of that happened. Um, so when Dave and Judd were kind of coming up with these rules, um, that they're just I'm there was just a huge burst um, of people going onto Facebook and relatedly like an enormous uptick, starting to be an enormous uptick in the amount of content being posted. And so if you imagine that they had like 40 million people in 2008 or 2009, I forget what the exact number is, but it doesn't really matter, um, that they had 40 million people. And as you said, 99.9% of the content was fine, but like 0.1% was on the edge or hard questions or things that didn't like didn't matter the chance of 
them making an error, taking something, making an error, or I say making an error, but like the chance of them doing something that offend, making a decision that a user didn't like or agree with, mm -hmm. and that user having some type of power access to amplify their voice and protest and be upset was a lot more minimal. When you get to their user base now and the number of posts that are getting flagged, it just becomes a much larger part of their product. It is actually like, I don't think that they saw content moderation as part of their product in right. 2009 because it just was so, it was like, it was, had not revealed itself yet to be significant. And the sea change has really been that in like the last three years, it has just revealed itself to be enormously significant part of their product. And so you've seen it go from being a dozen people in 2008, 2009, uh, doing content moderation in, um, in Menlo Park to being and like working and like working off one sheet of rules to like 90 pages of like a wiki document, like, you know, like that basically mm -hmm. is like all of these internal rules um, and hundreds of, and thousands of moderators around the globe to now Mark Zuckerberg saying, well, we're going to hire 10,000 moderators and train them on these rules. And they have now are just doing, have like just delegated huge teams of people to figuring out what those rules should be. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, and I think that that's like, a, that's a really important thing to talk about, about why all of a sudden this is kind of coming up and why it's going, I think, as you said, rightly at the, at the head of the show, um, it's going to keep being an issue. It's not going anywhere anytime <laughs> soon. This is like the new way that we speak. This is the new public square. This is the new, um, uh, this is, um, this is a new central commons for everyone. And it's just a very, uh, it's a, it's a super important thing to have to be able to understand. Yeah, and and sort of related to that, right? I mean, so so you talk about sort of the ninety pages of rules and being able to train people, but you know, and and those rules are are constantly changing because you know you'll start with a simple rule like no nudity, and then every one of the the gray areas will start to pop up, and you'll sort of build in exceptions and clauses, and and you're sort of creating you know what is effectively a set of laws, right? Um, now, one of the concerns about this is that it's a set of laws that are created. Uh, in a very undemocratic fashion and often in non-transparent fashion, right? And so some people are perhaps rightly or perhaps not concerned about the sort of lack of transparency about those rules and, and kind of how they're, um, you know, how they're enforced. And so, you know, I think some of the reason why people think that companies are doing nothing is that most of this is done in secret, right? Yeah. I mean, for a long time it was. There's been an incredible amount of incredible increase in transparency about this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of that is instrumental on the half on behalf of these companies. I think for a long time they'd kept the rules secret because under the kind of the understanding um, that if you um, if you released rules and you told people rules, uh, they became easier to break. And so yes. I always I actually I, I have this example that I used to my crazy everyone has a crazy uncle. My crazy uncle was in the army and he had uh, empty beer bottles around his bunk and his like sergeant came in and said, clean up those. No, we don't allow any empty beer bottles. Clean those up. And my uncle then just proceeded to fill all of the <laughs> beer bottles with water and right. leave them exactly where they were. Uh, right. So this is like, this is kind of the idea. It's like, 
this is the problem with rules. Like right. the, they are both more specific, and then because they are more specific, you can more specifically thwart them. <laughs> right. Uh, well, it's so, not, I mean, you said break the rules, but it's it's the opposite, right? It's it's really gaming the rules, right? It's right. it's complying, but you know, but with it's the breaking, the, breaking <laughs> yes. the spirit of the rule, which is the which is right. like I guess like we're kind of getting to a circular discussion of what the point like rules are instrumentalizing kind of the spirit of the rule, which is kind right. of a standard anyways, which is based on a norm. But yes, the, the, <laughs> the idea is that you're not kind of, that you're not making it, you're not, um, you're not relying entirely on some normative understanding, but yeah, I think that this is, that's a really great point um, to, to point out that he, there was no breaking of the rules. It was complying with the rule, but it was, <laughs> yeah, still, it's kind of like that line, the big Lebowski. It's like, you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> like, it's, right. it's, it's like, okay. Um, so there was a lot of concern about that and releasing the rules on Facebook and other places would just mean that spammers, um, bad actors, trolls use those rules to get around them. And, and, and just the, uh, to, to butt in, sorry, but like yep. the, the you know part of that too is the fact that the rules keep you know adjusting and changing. You know if the rules are transparent and somebody does one of those things to sort of violate the spirit of the laws, and then you know the the company creates the new exception, you know the new change to the rule to sort of deal with the the bad actors, then that to some extent you know some people argue that that's unfair. Well, I followed the rules, and now you're suddenly changing the rules on me, so which leads to a whole other mess as well. It, it's it's very it, it it puts the companies in a in a real no win situation. Totally, and I you know the the one thing that you know they that we you know you and I I think both say a lot is that this is impossible or this is very hard. And I want right. to I want to walk that back because I think it is like a little <laughs> hyperbolic. And I also think it's important to remember that like there are a lot of things like if you had if you really believed that this was impossible, you would say that basically like why are we even bothering to lobby these companies to do a better job um, for to create do a better job of getting rid of trolls that harass women and um, uh, you know on their platforms or getting not coming up with a better way to uh, take down revenge porn or a lot of other types of things that um, they've done a tremendous job in the la in the last number of years there's still have some ways to go but they've done a tremendous job doing um, and I think it's really important that there's there's a difference between understanding exactly how hard it is and uh, being being accepting of that, but not um, not compliant. So basically, you right. can understand exactly how hard this is and have sympathy and empathy. But I think the most more productive solution is okay. We get that this is really hard. I understand that you've been working on it, and you've worked on it for years. Uh, but here's how I think that you could make everything better, and let's work towards that together as kind of a society versus yeah. kind of what I think turns into this outrage machine between the press and Facebook and the press and Twitter or, um, and a lot of misunderstanding. They can do better. They in fact are doing so much better. I would point out to you and I don't want to like kind of, who knows, I might be jinxing it. I would point out to you that it has <laughs> been like a solid, like three or four months since I've seen a giant scandal about Facebook taking down something they shouldn't have taken down or or keeping up something that they shouldn't have kept that they should have kept mm -hmm. up. And so that's actually fascinating to me because there was a period for about two years there that every six weeks there was some giant, um, there was some giant scandal. And what that tells me is that they were doing a much better job at creating administrable rules, training people on them and hitting what people actually hitting what their users want to see or don't want to see. 
Um, yeah. And we have any, we are not having, you know, it's kind of like when people don't publish null results, like we don't, you know, they're not, you know, we're not seeing, like you don't see the, the null result, uh, but this is a tremendous null result. Like this is kind of a great, this is actually a very good indicator that maybe they're doing a better job uh, than we had, than we give them credit for. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's, that's true. And, and, and I should be clear too. Like I, I agree, you know, when I say it's impossible, I mean, it's impossible to do perfectly, right? There are always right. going to be right. some mistakes. Um, what I would like is for people not to assume that those mistakes are uh, indicative of, you know, bad faith or no concern or the company's not even thinking about this or, uh, you know, or just being interested in what makes the most money or, you know, things of that nature. Oh, yeah. which I, I am which equally I... just fed up with them. <laughs> I am bored. <laughs> I, you know, it's very tiring. Um, yeah. And I think that there is maybe starting to, I, you know, I did this Radiolab podcast. Um, there was the Vice piece that came out. Yep. And I do feel, and I wonder if you feel this way too, like, do you feel like there's been this kind of recently, there's kind of people are seeing it a little bit differently, that there's yeah. been a little bit more kind of room for people to ha be having a conversation about the fact that like, maybe these are hard questions and maybe this is getting a little bit better. Yeah, I, I think that's true, and and I think those are those are both great great examples. I mean, Radio Lab recently did did a, a long podcast that I think really sort of in in ways that you know only Radio Lab can mm. do, sort of really sort of demonstrated and kind of walked you through how difficult these these choices are and how you know what seems like an easy decision often has a lot more elements to it than than people believe. Um, and same with with uh, the the um, the vice piece, which I, it was motherboard, right? It was part part of motherboard, was it? Um, yeah, it might have been the, that. Yeah, the mothership vice, you know, one of those. But they did this very very long and detailed article that you were quoted in extensively. Um, that even involved them actually going to like content moderation meetings uh, at Facebook and really beginning to get an understanding of it. And I think I think those things are helping, and I'm glad that that's happening. There's also um, this documentary which I think is going to be shown on PBS soon called The Cleaners, um, which I got to see a screening of recently that is another one that's that's like a really thorough documentary looking at, you know, specifically from the perspective of like, um, you know, these sort of lower wage employees in cubicles in the Philippines uh, who have to make these decisions. And, you know, the movie doesn't doesn't really take a stance, but I think does a really good job of demonstrating how difficult these choices are and, you know, and, and trying to put all of these gray areas into a situation where somebody has to make a yes or no decision. Um, and it just sort of systematically walks you through all of these different examples and all of these different individuals who, who worked on content moderation at Facebook and sort of, you know, continually shows examples where you're like, oh, uh, I don't know how I would decide that situation or, oh, that's that's a much more complex situation. So I think, you know, between all these things, you know, including your paper, you know, I, I think that hopefully people are beginning to to get that idea that, that these things are 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 difficult. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see, you know, the next big, uh, you know, blow up over, <laughs> over one of these issues, we'll see if people sort of automatically revert back to to their earlier positions. Um, one thing that I did want to touch on, which we had, and I sort of mentioned it in the opening, but I think it's important because there are still some people out there who um, who who are of the opinion that there should be no moderation whatsoever, um, and I think that's worth ad addressing at least a little bit, right? And 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 
you know, from my perspective, and I'm going to once again name check Dave Wilner because he he sort of helped shape my thinking on this. You know, the argument that he made was I wish I know, could like clone him <laughs> and just send him to like people like to like eight million reporters. Yeah, I know it's very yeah. difficult. I know. Yeah, no, I I I, I don't know if he's blocked me on <laughs> on email or or Facebook because I, I'm always bugging him to like go to this event or that event to, to just so people more people can hear him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but uh you know he you know he he made the point to me and this was years ago when we were first discussing it he said you know well uh do you think that that you know platforms should block spam and you know almost everyone then says well yeah of course and he says okay well now you admit that moderation is important and necessary now we can have a discussion on where on the spectrum that moderation should fall mm. and and you're like oh yeah right i mean that is an important point if you do absolutely no moderation at all you get and you know your platform is uh, you know even moderately popular you get overwhelmed by spam so once you say like spam is not okay you're agreeing to some level of moderation and then there's a question of where do you want to put that and people can have different decisions on where they want to sort of put that marker in terms of how how much kind of moderation they want to do but i think you know recognizing that to some people you know, you can say, well, we don't want spam on the platform. Okay. You know, then you begin to say, well, you know, outright trolling, that's a kind of spam, you know, abuse, harassment, um, all that kind of stuff is a kind of spam, depending on how you define what you want to define. Uh, and so, you know, everyone in reality recognizes that moderation is necessary, even if they say otherwise. Um, it's just a question of how do you, how do you then implement it? Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I, I've been getting hit even even today, right before we were recording this. Somebody was screaming at me on Twitter <laughs> about how you're a better you know, person than me. <laughs> I like just do not engage. I have like a firm policy. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah. I, but I, but I think it's important for people to to at least recognize that. I think the the idea that platforms should do no moderation whatsoever is is not a realistic solution. Um, for, for anyone who's who's really thought through these issues. No, and it's I completely agree. And I think that's something Daniel Citron talks about and yeah. Carlton Gillespie talks about. And, um, you know, and you were speaking about kind of the, the I hope that this, I haven't seen this trailer for The Cleaners, but I hope that it ta they talk to Sarah Roberts, who does all yes. of the work on this incredible, she does just amazing work on like the she, labor she's... side of this stuff and the impact of yeah. looking at these, like these kind of like, okay, now we've created an entire rule of law and system to review these things and we've created these judges basically these trained decision makers <laughs> that we like hire at low wages to run the, all of these hard decisions and it's just egregious work one of the one of the things that i tell people is that it's fascinating to get groups of content moderators or people who worked in policy together um and if you get them together, they almost all knew, know, can tell you exactly where they were whenever something terrible has happened in, the United, <laughs> in like in like the world. So they all knew where they were during like the Mexican beheading video going viral. Right. They all know where they were during like the Newton school shooting. They all know, you know, it's like every <laughs> horrible event that was horrible for us. Imagine if you had the back end of seeing every single awful thing and having to sort through every single awful thing that people were saying in those moments. Yeah. Um, and so it's just these traumatic kind of moments. But what you're, I mean, I think that the the bigger part of what you're saying is that uh, is that yeah, it's a it's um, an incredibly it's an incredibly important thing to remember. And I am a 
huge, like huge, like First Amendment and free speech um, advocate. And I almost always come down on these decision content moderation decisions um, in terms of like leaving speech up. And I don't like hide the ball in that. Um, I think it's super important. But I am not Mm -hmm. I very much buy the idea that certain types of like that speech can um, that speech and counter speech um, are disadvantaged. because of the nature of online speech and the internet can really uh, chill speech and chill users' um, ability to to speak and use the platforms and their ability to interact. And it can have incredibly harmful effects and that those effects are magnified by the nature of what online speech is. Um, and so, but it's a real, that is a really hard balancing act. That is my hard question, like of all of the questions. Like that is the one I, that I yeah. struggle with the most. Um because I truly believe that especially women and minorities are targeted more strongly in a lot of these types of by trolls and other types um, of uh, other types of kind of bad actors. And I really believe that like, while I really believe in the idea of counter speech, I also just understand that practically having a thousand replies to like you posting a video about, you know, speaking about your feminist intuitions or whatever else you know, of people sending vitriol at you is just a very high price to pay to speak. And a lot of people would rather than choose not to speak. And so there has to be some type of moderation level that falls in to like all of these things. Yeah. And, and I mean, we, we could go on for a whole, you know, another hour just on sort of the, the free speech implications of all of this and, and exactly that kind of discussion. And, and, and I, I'm, 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 I don't want to, we don't have enough time no, to, I know, I know. <laughs> to, to do that. But yeah, no, it, 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 it is. This is why it's, it is such an interesting discussion. And I actually think, you know, this is important. I mean, I think a lot of people who, who, um, hear these discussions think that most of the people making these discussions are not, you know, you know, huge free speech supporters. And yet the opposite is often true. I mean, almost everyone that you talk to who is deeply involved in these issues, you know, a lot of them come directly out of, you know, sort of, you know, first amendment, uh, legal practices. Or, or, or just you know, strong free speech, human rights supporters around the globe, you know, they're they're key parts of this discussion in part because you know they recognize how. Um, you know, in, in other context, uh, you know, attempts to to silence speech is, is incredibly damaging. And the question is, how do you how do you understand these different factors, and how do you encourage, you know, you know, encourage more free speech in a way that that is you know, effective, uh, as opposed to sort of actually silencing people. It's, 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 it's a very, very complex, uh, and interesting and nuanced discussion, uh, which is sometimes difficult to have with, with, um, people who don't want to have nuanced discussions. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, think. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, um, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of, of different, you know, important things on that. And, and, um, just to, to, uh, circle back on one thing, Sarah, Sarah Roberts, who's uh professor at UCLA, she, she was, I think she was an advisor to that, to the film, the cleaners, and she appears sort of somewhat briefly in, in the cleaners. So it's, it definitely takes into account a lot of what, what she's talking about. It's a really, you know, another one of these things where we're seeing all these examples of people beginning to have these discussions, beginning to understand them. And hopefully that'll lead to sort of more thoughtful discussions and, and more, um, you know, more nuanced discussions about, about these, these topics. Um, yeah, I recently spoke to kind of the New York times, uh, it was it uh, Farhad Manju about, um, uh-huh. yeah, about kind of the, the Dorsey stuff. And I was saying how the, and the testimony in Congress, and I kind of said to him, you know, 
um, a lot of the, like the question that I get a lot right now is um, why is this happening now? Like why now? Right. Why are we? Why is this like all of a sudden like such a present thing? This Alex Jones stuff and everything. And I am often. I was recently on the job market. And I'd present my paper to um, to to law schools and faculties, and people just were like, "You just seem like a tech utopian. You just seem." And I'm very <laughs> like. Okay, guilty a little bit is charged, but right. I, I am like not, I'm also a pragmatist. I just think that we are, you know, front, and I'm also kind of, I have a background in cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience. I think that we are very much in this norm setting process. Right. We just have not understood this world. We're just like kind of like sacks of meat walking around trying to figure <laughs> out what the heck is going on on the internet, this new like crazy space. And we have no idea what to do. And I think that we've, we're slowly starting to grok exactly how this works and to put new, um, new things. Now I think that there is a new conversation happening around online shaming and a new consciousness around online shaming that wasn't there before. Fake news was not a concept that people thought about. I kind of thought it was always hype, like all of this stuff about fake yeah. news. But even if it was always hype, the effect of talking so much about fake news has made it so that everyone is a little bit more skeptical in a good way about what yeah. they consume online. <laughs> and so like, there are like all of these types of things that are happening in the background that I think, um, I am hopeful, I am optimistic will eventually kind of drown out all of kind of the negative and some of the, the, the outrage machine and the too quick to respond um, mechanisms that have fallen into place. And hopefully we'll get to a better place, but it's going to be a while, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And I, I also think that's probably a good note to, to close out the podcast on. Uh, and and hopefully we'll see that. But uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical about how long it will take to get there. I, I agree that eventually people will sort of hopefully begin to recognize this stuff. But the uh, the outrage machine is is very tempting for a large number I know, of people. I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm very I'm very wise. Like, so it's like a little bit of maybe I am a little bit of a crazy optimist about this. I just have to be or otherwise I just just be kind of like have to give yeah. up and you know jump off yeah. a building or something <laughs> yeah well i mean it's good i mean i'm i'm usually you know accused of being the crazy optimist so if, if, you know feeling feeling being on the pessimist or slightly more pessimistic side is is uh is is kind of neat for me <laughs> yeah <Exactly. laughs> anyways <laughs> uh kate again uh thank you very much for well for writing this paper again uh if you missed it the paper is called the new governors uh you do a search on it you can find it online and we'll link to it in the description to this podcast um it's a really really great paper hopefully you recognize that from listening to this conversation um and so and thank you for joining us on the podcast and having this discussion. Um, and thanks to everyone who was listening as well. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, something else. All right. Thanks.